Yeah, it's like so much of what's going on right now. It's an interruption in our daily lives and that daily ritual um, that that I don't think any of us appreciated enough when we had it. Um, the fact of just just going to a diner for breakfast or uh, going to the Starbucks drive through uh, in the morning to, to get a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that we can't do those things, I think we appreciate them a hell of a lot more than we did a month ago. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. Joining me today is a return guest. I had so much fun talking um, Springsteen and comics and all other stuff with Ron. I said, will you please come back? Will you please come back? And Ron was kind enough to say yes. So, Ron, welcome back to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. It's, you know, it's not like I had a whole lot else to do right now. I will take that as, um, as a compliment anyway. Uh, it is true. I am podcasting more. Um, you know, I normally podcast at night, but, um, I'm using my lunch hours to do a few podcasting because I'm able to get people I normally can't get. Um, but you know, you're stuck at the house and so... You know, what are you going to do on your lunch hour except go eat a cold sandwich? So I might as well podcast. Well, it's it's the new normal for for all of us. Obviously, the the last time you and I talked, um, the the situation was not to the point that it is now where we're all sort of uh, home and and not really interacting with each other in any way other than what we're doing right now. Uh, you yeah. know, it's um and, and for me, as we, you know, as we talked about a little bit, this is not all that different. This is this is kind of what my daily life was like anyway. I work at home um, when we have meetings with my publishing partners or editors that I'm working with. It's all you know, it's all Skype or Zoom or Google Hangouts. So this is you know, this is kind of what I'm used to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I understand that for for people who are not used to this, who are not used to um, uh, to their commute being uh, within their own house uh, and uh, and having to adjust to that, I, I, it's it's a huge it's a huge game changer for a lot of people. Yeah, I did not realize I had done this, and I certainly didn't do it consciously. But after my first week of working for home. I moved from one chair in the living room to another one, and it was the one where the windows were to my back, and um, instead of watching TV between meetings or emails, I, I grabbed the box of to-be-read books that I've had piling up and am reading between meetings. So I'm in that chair when I'm working, and then across the living room is the chair I normally sit uh, when my wife and I are watching TV together, and then I have in the computer room where I podcast, and I'm like, okay, that's my commute. I go from 
the working chair to the watching TV chair to the podcasting chair so that mentally I know which hat I'm supposed to be wearing. All right. Well, you got everybody's got to have their, you know, have their boundaries and figure out how this works for them. Yeah. Uh, I've been doing it for a lot of years. So, I, you know, I sort of have my routine and and it's it's no big deal. But I know it's a it's a real uh, it's a real challenge for for people who um, who aren't used to this. And, and certainly I've I've had people that aren't, aren't used to this contact me and say, well, you work at home. How does this work? How, you yeah, know, how, yeah. do you, how do you how do you not sit here and play video games all day? Yeah. yeah. Uh, how is this affecting your um, publishing partners? And as you guys, because, you know, new comics aren't getting delivered. Uh, we just have digital. Um, you can still order trade paperbacks from, you know, websites and order. But your daily dose or weekly dose of new comics is not happening right now, is it? It is not the you know the comics have generally one distributor into the into your local comic shop which is is Diamond Distributors and a number of weeks ago they decided that they were not going to be taking in new product therefore that meant that they were not going to be sending out new product to to comic shops and um, for you know for folks who are maybe more more Springsteen literate than comics literate um, local comic shops. Uh, get a new shipment of books every Wednesday. New comics come out on Wednesdays, and they're in the store. and the And the faithful fans um, go to the store every Wednesday uh, or shortly thereafter to pick up to pick up their new stuff. So it's you know dozens of titles come out each week, and that is kind of that weekly drip is kind of the lifeblood of the direct market for for comics. And that doesn't exist right now. New new comics have not been in the stores for a number of weeks, and certainly a number of stores, the vast number of stores, are closed now. Um, maybe they can do curbside pickup, depending on on where you are in the country. But um, a lot of stores are just not able to function right now. So it's a it's a real race to figure out how to how to keep those stores afloat which means the stores can stay afloat, which means the distributor stays afloat, which means the publishers stay afloat, which means the publisher's staff uh, personnel and the creators that work for them as freelancers can stay afloat. So it's a it's a ecosystem where every part depends on every other part. And right now the whole thing is kind of shut down. Yeah, we, we talked a little bit, and I'm going to cut edit this in, later uh probably post credit our discussion but um you talk about rituals like you were taking your daughter's car to the shop and normally there's a local coffee shop and you guys would always have breakfast um it every wednesday um there is a ritual for many of us is you on your lunch hour you go you pick up new comics and then you go somewhere and eat lunch and kind of look through them. Um, and it's just, it's it's part of your routine. And now then, that's not happening. Yeah, it's like so much of what's going on right now. It's an interruption in our daily lives and that daily ritual um, that, that I don't think any of us appreciated enough when we had it. Um, the fact of just, just going to a diner for breakfast or... Uh, going to the Starbucks drive-through 
uh, in the morning to to get a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that we can't do those things, I think we appreciate them a hell of a lot more than we did a month ago. I, I think so, Ron. In fact, like the one of the comments I've made is, you know, in in the past when we used Uber Eats because we were lazy. Um, compared to now that if you wanted to get something to go that you're not cooking yourself, uh, you either it or DoorDash or one of the other services or go through a drive through And um, my wife and I both have kind of pinky sweared, like, okay, you know, it is ridiculous for us not to go out to eat. If we're, you know, let's not be lazy once this starts again. Um, I'm... I certainly am missing concerts um, and, um, you know, other things. And and we've talked about and we hope that we follow through on this to support local theater and to local bands and to go out more now that we can't. Yeah, well, I think once once we get in front of this thing and the um, the restrictions are, you know, are peeled back and I think that's going to happen Little by little, it's certainly not going to be, you know, hey, everybody go, you know, <clears throat> go sit with 50,000 of your closest friends at a baseball game. Yeah, um, that that seems like it's pretty far away. I think, you know, things are going to are going to get back to where they need to be little by little so that we can we can keep the progress that's been made. Wow. We don't you know, we don't yeah. backslide on on the spread of this thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean. Concert venues, bars and restaurants, um, comic book stores, your local record store um, is, to great extent, almost the same beast as um, as your local comic shop. Um, they get product every week, and they they depend on that uh, on that regularity visit from um, from the faithful uh, and from that community that they've built. Um, I know there are even there are even stores that are combination record stores and comic shops because they tend to attract the same kind of of faithful. Uh, they they tend to attract the same kind of community, um, and I think there's a lot of crossover in that Venn diagram. So I, I you know I think those kind of businesses, which also tend to have fairly uh, close to the bone margins yeah. uh, for the, for the retailers that are, that are operating them. Um, those are, I think some of the most vulnerable businesses that we have to try to protect while this is going on. And I know, I know a lot of stores are still, you know, doing mail order. They're selling um, gift certificates that can be redeemed as soon as the store is open again to, you know, just to try to, to keep a little bit of money coming in so they can, um, they can get through this process until, um, until there's, there's product again and they can open again. And, and, and actually just, um, <clears throat> we're recording this, uh, on the day that, uh, diamond distributors announced that they hope to start, um, getting new comics back into stores by, by mid to end of May. So, Hopefully, uh, hopefully that's a that's a realistic uh, time frame, and that can actually have happen. Obviously, everything's very adjustable, and there are different answers for different parts of the country. But overall, if um, if the distributor can start getting new material back into shops, uh, that's obviously a huge step forward. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things I and I if you don't want to talk about this, you don't have to. But I have enjoyed following you on Twitter and especially some of your passionate discussions about certain celebrities um, tweeting about um, how we got to get this place open again and talking about that the small percentage of death we may get is a acceptable margin. Um, what the F are they thinking? Well, I think it's just, you know, these are people who choose to live in their own reality. It's, it's not a fact-based reality. It's not a scientifically-based reality. It's uh, it's kind of a, a grievance politically-based reality um, where they're, you know, I think the, the point they're trying to make is 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 much more about um, is much more about pushing back against experts and you know the reality of the of the science in this and and also the fact that that the federal government um, bungled this terribly and we are a lot worse off because we don't have anybody in charge that has a clue uh, of what they're doing so. Um, so if you're in a state like I am, like New York state that, that took this seriously and tried to be as far out in front of it as they could, um, uh, we're starting to see the curve flatten and we're starting to see, um, we're starting to see, um, progress being made in terms of, uh, hospitalizations going down and deaths going down. Uh, and obviously there's still far, far too many. This is a, hideous tragedy um and it's a it's a hideous tragedy because it didn't have to be this bad yeah if we had had people in place um that took this seriously and uh took preventative measures instead of ignoring it for two months um there'd be a lot of people alive now that are no longer with us uh and 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 the sort of the excuse making and the blame casting that has gone on to try to uh, avoid responsibility for this, uh, I think, is what fuels a lot of that. Well, let's just open the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's you know, to me, look, you can't see the pandemic. You can't you can't see the virus. Um, that doesn't mean it's not there, you dummy. Um, you exactly. know, the the you can't see the air you breathe, but it's there. It's you know it's the 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 science denialism that has kind of taken root, um, particularly on one side of the aisle, is just a a, a toxic mess um, that we as a nation have to reckon with at some point. Um, you know, science science does not care about your feelings or your political affiliation. No, it doesn't. Uh, facts are facts. And you know, my good friend Bella Porik, who has been on the podcast multiple times. She's a law student there in New York. Um, She talked about um, she is a um, that, you know, she says, I would not thought she goes, you would think we would have learned something from the AIDS crisis. And um, and she says, and I am saddened that it seems like we learned nothing that and and I realize it's not total apples to apples. But I think there's a lot of truth in that, that it it appears that the government chooses not to learn from these things uh, just for whatever reason. 
Um, and I think John Oliver talked about it in his show just this past Sunday about certain politicians are afraid that, and I'm using air quotes, helping people might become the norm and excuse for the federal government to expand um, instead of just going, yes, there should be a safety net that we provide as a society. Well, I think I think part of it is that um, we as a nation certainly got sort of used to the government functioning properly. We got used to not having to worry about what the government is doing on a daily basis. Um, uh, that's certainly not the case anymore, is it? Um, no, so, not at all. So, so the fact that, um, you know, that Ebola was something that could have turned into a pandemic and raged through the U.S. H1N1 could have turned into a pandemic and raced, raced through the U.S. But we had competent people in place who did the job of making sure that didn't happen. Um, and then we dismantled a lot of that. So uh, because when when a tragedy doesn't happen, nobody really looks at it as a tragedy. Nobody looks at at it as uh, a bullet that you barely dodged. People look at it like um, it was something that didn't matter. Like it was the people look at it like a thing that wasn't serious uh, enough to to pay attention to. Well, frankly, it you know, it wasn't serious enough to pay attention to because people who are experts in this field got out in front of it and did something about it so that it didn't impact your daily life. Uh, and we, we are now reaping the rewards of not having those people in place and not dealing with things ahead of time. Now we're trying to catch up and you know, the, the everybody's life, literally everybody's life has been affected by this and the economy has been tanked. So, um, you know, I think it's a, for those who want to pay attention, I think it's a harsh reminder of of um, the wages of ignoring things that don't seem to affect you, uh, because eventually they do. Yeah. One of the things that I think is, as you talked about, is the idea of you often, um, on a simple terms, um, when my son was a teenager – my wife said, you always make me be the bad guy. And I said, what do you mean? She says, you're always coming to me with a question about can he do something? And I said, that's because you don't see the things that I already shut down immediately when he asked me. And I go, no. <laughs> I said, so, you know, you don't see those um, questions. And so then when I come back, going, okay, I'm not so sure about it, and I'm getting your impact, you know, you just think that's everything you're getting. Um, the same thing with the um, with the CIA and NSA and all these other things, FBI, the things they stop, we don't, are not necessarily aware of, and so we're not, our successes, those successes are quiet, and it's the failures that get shown. Yeah, it's uh, look. This is a. I think this is a lesson that will um, that will affect generations. At least, at least I hope it does. Um, you know, it's it's. This is a very harsh lesson in yes. um, in respecting science. 
So I'm going to pivot slightly. Um, this feels like the plot of a Stephen King novel. <laughs> and <laughs> he is one of your influences. So talk a little bit about, um, do you agree this feels like a Stephen King novel? And talk about how, uh, last time we talked about how Bruce's storytelling ability has influenced your writing. Talk a little bit about Stephen King. Um. Yeah, in a lot of ways, Bruce and Stephen King are sort of the, the you know the twin pillars upon which I have constructed my career um, without actually realizing it. Um, and the the connection is that the uh, the same college girlfriend that introduced me to Bruce um, is the same one that introduced me to Stephen King. Uh, she gave me a copy of uh, Pet Cemetery when we first started dating. And I had, you know, the same, the same with with Bruce um, in the in the Born in the USA mania, where he was the biggest thing in the world. And and in my in my youth, I immediately dismissed that because something that's that popular can't be any good in my you know elitist mind at that point. Uh, same thing with Stephen King. You know, every every book that he published was a number one bestseller, and therefore it couldn't be any good uh, if that many people liked it. And lo and behold, it wasn't just good, it was great. And it really spoke to me by the time I was able to um, open up the book and and go through it. Um, it really, you know, what he does, the, the kind of storytelling he does and the kind of character work that he does is what appeals to me as both a reader and a writer. Uh, and he always seems to me to be the guy who is telling a story around a campfire um, that, uh, that you have to, you have to hear the next chapter of, uh, or he's the guy sitting at the end of the bar telling you a story. Um, it's all, uh, it's all right in my wheelhouse. Just the same as, just the same as Bruce. Um, Stephen King, um, is a consummate storyteller. Uh, and I know certainly for a while in his career, he was dismissed as the, you know, the horror guy, the scary guy. But I think, um, I think he's certainly moved beyond uh, just that classification. And his stories are certainly, there's a lot of, there's a lot of horror. There's a lot of weird stuff. There's a lot of, you know, Twilight Zone-esque uh, happenings. Um, but that doesn't, just because they're genre stories, that doesn't invalidate them as literature by any means. Yeah, I agree. I mean, he is somebody... Um... There are so many, you know, when people reach out and we'll talk about it and, you know, and my immediate first reaction is Dead Zone was something that I read right when it was published and was amazed because I don't like horror. And my friend um, David said, okay, I know you don't like horror, but you should read this book. And, um, and, you know, I read The Dead Zone and was just amazed at how clear a story it was and how heartbreaking. And, um, and that was my gateway into, and now then I don't read a lot of horror, but I read Stephen King because the characters are so real. Yeah. Well, it, it's funny you mentioned dead zone because that was one of the other ones that sort of lured me in. Um, and, uh, I remember seeing the, the, Cronenberg film version, which is just a great movie. It uh, is. 
and you know terribly heartbreaking and and you know <laughs> and unfortunately very uh very of the moment uh with uh, Greg Stilson's character being uh, uh you know a complete lunatic who is not uh, who is not ready to be president uh not that I'm drawing any comparisons to anyone in particular I am uh, certainly not <laughs> I agree that you know I'm just um, but- but the the you know the the performance by Christopher Walken in that and and just that storyline, uh, much like you, it, it it turned out to be not not the thing that I expected, um, mm-hmm. and uh, just I really fell in love with that story. And Dead Zone, um, after I had been introduced to that uh, to the to Pet Cemetery by my girlfriend of the time, Dead Zone was one of the ones that I that I sought out afterwards. Um, and really just, I, I think I had, I think I had gone into the store to get, oh, maybe Christine was the new one at that point yeah. and they were sold out. So I ended up picking up dead zone instead. And, um, that's still one of my, one of my favorite King, uh, novels and one of my favorite novels, period. I just think it's, it's, uh, such a wonderful humanistic tale, um, uh, I, I really, uh, I really take a lot from that that book all the time. Yeah, I do too. And the 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 sorrow in of you know the their bad timing as he talks about, and um, and yes, I agree with the movie. Um, who knew Jed Bartlett um, that early? could be that um evil <laughs> yeah so, right uh, we, we you know he's he's been both ends of the spectrum he has it has been very much so uh, that's that's awesome um so i one of the reasons i know we i wanted to have you on is um you guys are in the middle of a kickstarter so before we get to the specifics what why did you guys decide as a publisher started kickstarting to launch new titles or what give me a little bit of the background on that um well obviously how we publish things has has evolved and i don't mean we as in you know the publishing company ominous press that i'm part of um i just mean in general the, the the publishing industry in general um there are fewer and fewer gatekeepers if you will um, certainly when I broke into comics, this is 30 years ago now, um, you could work for Marvel or DC or Dark Horse or a couple of other uh, small, smaller publishers. And that was kind of it. You know, that that was your way to make comics. Uh, and if you, you know, couldn't break in, you could you could make your own comic uh, and find a copy machine somewhere and and produce your black and white comic and sell it out of the back of your trunk, back of your car, I guess. Um, in a lot of ways, kind of like being an independent musician and, you know, doing, doing shows and selling cassettes afterwards. Um, that was kind of it. Yeah. There was, there was no other, um, there was no other way to get your work out there. Um, but as technology has evolved, um, self publishing became a lot more viable digital publishing is a lot more viable. And now that you can, um, and now that you can just make your comic and put it online and reach anywhere in the world. Um, obviously it's a very, uh, small D democratic process. Now, nobody there, you know, if you want to make a comic and get it in front of people, 
you make a comic and get it in front of people. And um, the advent of Kickstarter uh, is sort of the next evolution of that, which is um, you can you can take your take your project to Kickstarter and say this is the thing that I've done or this is the thing that I'm doing. Help me fund it, and you go directly to uh, directly to the audience to say this is this is the thing I want to do. Would you help support it? Uh, and certainly. Um, it's it's a great tool in the toolbox to um, to make whatever it is in this case comics certainly, but you can make whatever you want and and go direct to uh, go direct to the public. Uh, it's as I said before the the process of you know the you doing the work for the publisher, the publisher sending it to the printer, the printer sending it to the distributor at Diamond. Diamond sending it to the local comic shop and then the local comic shop selling it to their customers. I mean, that's a long chain. Uh, and if any link in that chain doesn't work properly, it, it upsets the whole thing. Uh, Kickstarter allows you to make the thing yourself and send it directly to the reader. Um, you can, you can bypass that, um, that, that production line. Uh, and that distribution system, if you want, on Kickstarter. So, um, so we at Ominous Press have found that um, it's a way to do your thing, uh, be supported directly by the audience, and um, and it's also a way to make the exact book that you want to make. Um, there are no, there's no editorial interference. Uh, there's no, um, there's there's no decision being made that um, isn't made by you isn't made by the creator uh in our case and um it's you know it's a very satisfying process it's it's also a, it's also great advertisement frankly if you if you put your thing on kickstarter um and people you know you can lead people to it those people tell other people and the whole thing just kind of grows yeah like one of the things that uh, we talked about last time uh, my friend tom zoller um and you know, he had done um, for um, Webtoons doing a web comic. And um, he did a Kickstarter to collect all these digital comics into a trade. Um, and, you know, his thought was if I can get enough to fund the book, then I will have extras that as I go to conventions, I can sell, right? So it was a smart business thing for him, as well as a chance to get his work out there. So it, it's a very powerful tool, um, and you know I do my share of, of watching Kickstarter and seeing, oh, this looks interesting. I should support this. I should do that, and I love the different options. Well, it also allows uh, you know creators and self-publishers to to make the sort of uh, book that you want to make uh where you know where maybe a um maybe a publisher is not going to be interested in say historical fiction um because obviously one of the one of the factors that uh has to go into a publisher making a decision to take on your project is what are the other media uses of this um can this be optioned as a tv series as a movie as a video game something like that because um you know because comics are a fairly um 
bare bones business. Uh, yeah. And, you know, if you can uh, certain, certainly, you know, The Walking Dead did very well as a comic series. The Walking Dead did really, really, really well and is still doing really well as a TV series. Yes. That's where the that's where the huge profit is, um, uh, which is which is not to say um, it's that's a bad thing at all. It's yeah, uh, it's a terrific aspect that that comics have become such a huge source of um, development material for film and TV. Um, but if if you have a you know if you have uh, like in my case, I, one of the books I've done is called Samurai Heaven and Earth, and it's set in the 17th century in Japan and then in China and then uh, at the Palace of Versailles where the the main samurai character ends up meeting the Three Musketeers. Um, to make that as a film or a TV series is a lot more expensive than to make a contemporary film series where you can just go shoot outside somewhere in LA. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the budgetary, uh, uh, the budgetary, uh, needs for something like that are a lot greater than, you know, uh, two or three character, you know, true detective kind of thing. Um, so those sorts of decisions factor into, um, whether a publisher is going to pick up your book or not. But, uh, and thankfully, you know, Dark Horse picked up Samurai Heaven and Earth and, it, you know, was successful. And um, hopefully we'll we'll do a, a third version of it at some point. Um, but um, those sorts of things factor into whether you can get your book published. Uh, but if you just want to if if that's the sort of idea that you have or it's a, you know, galaxy spanning science fiction epic that would cost three hundred million dollars to make as a movie. And that's the comic idea you have. You just take it to Kickstarter. You don't have to worry about those other concerns. As uh, long as you get enough people to support you um, to make it and print it and ship it, um, you get to make your book. Well, and I think what's interesting, right, is um, Dark Horse did believe in you and, and they backed. But I could see in the past that's a tough sell. Hey, okay, I want to do the samurai, and I want to do what? Um, but one of the good things about the modern comic world is we are, despite what popular public opinion may be, we aren't just you know um, heroes in tights. There is a huge diversity now of the type of stories we're telling in this medium. Oh, for sure. Um, and it's, it's, it's really always been that way. Certainly, mm-hmm. you know, in the, in the forties and fifties, there were, you know, detective comics, uh, true crime, horror, romance, uh, you know, pirate comics, every sort of genre imaginable. Uh, and certainly it's every sort of genre imaginable in so many other countries, but, superheroes have had such a stranglehold on our, our business from, you know, the sixties into the eighties, really. Mm -hmm. Um, that that's the, you know, that's what most, when you say comic book, most people think of Batman and Superman and Spider-Man. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And certainly, you know, certainly comic book now means anything. Comic book means the walking dead. Uh, and so many, and frankly, 
you know, a dozen other series that are on TV right now, uh, all, all culled from comics. Um, when anybody asked me what my favorite comic book movie is, I, you know, my answer is, is it's not Avengers. It's not Batman. It's road to perdition. Um, and yeah, road to perdition is a comic book movie because it came from a graphic novel. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's a gangster, it's a gangster movie with, with Tom Hanks and Paul Newman and, uh, and the future James Bond. Uh, and it's just an amazing movie, but yeah, it came from a comic book. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I, I agree. Um, we talked about that, I think last time that, um, the amount of work and it's done, it's just a beautiful film that was based on an amazing comic. So that's that's awesome. Um, you guys have a current Kickstarter going, so talk to me a little bit about what um, what you're working on now and why it's so special for a lot of comic fans. Um, the current Kickstarter from Ominous, uh, which I am I am not writing, I am uh, I am editing it uh, because they don't need my services as writer. Uh, the writer is Jim Starlin who is the guy who got me into this business and still one of my best friends. Uh, Jim is the creator of Thanos and Gamora and Drax and the Infinity Gauntlet, which maybe a few people have seen at the movies. Yeah, just maybe. Uh, so uh, Dreadstar is a big cosmic adventure, the kind of stuff that Jim is famous for. Um, but uh, it it has not been a – there have been no new Dreadstar stories for uh, – almost 30 years. Um, and Jim has finally come back to Dreadstar to tell a new story. It's a 100-page graphic novel called, uh, naturally enough, Dreadstar Returns. And really the, the biggest news of, about it is that Jim is not only writing it, he's drawing it. And um, that's news because Jim has not drawn much of anything in about four years since he had an air compressor accident and blew a chunk out of his drawing hand uh, and almost took out an eye. So um, he had a, had this fairly serious accident, and he really thought his drawing days were over, uh, that it was just the, the muscle loss and the injury was going to prevent him from being able to draw comics again. And um, little by little... He worked himself back into shape, worked his drawing hand back into shape and worked the muscles so that he could – he started to do some covers. He did he did covers uh, for uh, a set of omnibus volumes of the previous Dreadstar material, which is about 1,500 pages that Ominous produced um, within the last year and a half or so. Uh, Recollecting all of that stuff, Jim did uh, – Jim completely remastered the color and we made some – fixes to the to the issues um so jim drew new covers for each of those volumes as well as a slipcase, and i think that sort of got the uh got the drawing juices flowing again and uh we had we started to talk about well what um what else do you want to do with dreadstar and he said he had a few more stories in mind that he wanted to tell um and and eventually bring the story of dreadstar to a definitive close um and uh, we started to talk about, well, who, who should draw that? And we kicked around some names. I actually even contacted some mutual friend artists who were, you know, on the list to draw it. 
And then, uh, and then last year, Jim said to me, uh, I've been drawing pages and I think they're coming out. Okay. And he sent me about 10 pencil pages of this new dread star story. And he said, what do you think? And I said, well, I think we found the artist. Um, so, uh, you know, he did not expect it. We had had conversations where he said to me, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a storyteller. Uh, if I can't draw the stories, that's okay. I can still write them. And that was where his mindset was. But he's now, you know, 60 or more pages into this 100 page graphic novel drawing it. And it, it's absolutely uh, classic Jim Starlin stuff. He's having a ball doing it. Um, it's taken him a little longer to draw the pages because he's got to give his hand a rest as he goes. But it's tremendous looking stuff. Um, and I couldn't be happier to be involved with it. So since we had such a, a great uh, success with the Dreadstar Omnibus volumes, uh, we decided that let's let's take Dreadstar Returns to Kickstarter as well. So um, the campaign is live now, and uh, the two main items on the on the menu are the Dreadstar Returns 100-page graphic novel written and drawn by Jim. Uh, and a Dreadstar guidebook that is kind of a who's who compendium for uh, the entire series of Dreadstar. And um, first time that anything like that has been attempted, and we got uh, got a guy named Bob Greenberger to write that, um, who is kind of the dean of comic scholars in terms of doing who's who and guidebooks and encyclopedias. Um, and Bob actually just turned in the manuscript for the whole thing uh, earlier this week. And it is, you know, it is a glorious tome. And I'm really proud to be involved in both books. The Do you need to have read any of the earlier work to enjoy this new trade paperback? No. Uh, and it's actually a hardcover. We're going hardcover. hardcover. Oh, nice. You're getting a lovely hardcover right off the bat. Um, uh, so you don't you don't really need to have read any of the previous material. Um, Jim is, you know, Jim is a, an old hand at this and he's working whatever you need to know. He's working that into the storyline, um, nice. in a, a non obvious way. Now, certainly if you, if you want to read the previous material, we've got 1500 pages of it. Um, it's all just, you know, primo Jim Starlin content. Um, and those are, those are available as part of the Kickstarter too. Um, Although I think our I think our uh, our stock of the slipcase three volume set is um, is getting getting down there. Everybody everybody loves those, so um, mm. the, all three volumes are available separately as well. Um, but you don't you don't really need to have read you know fifteen hundred pages of Dreadstar material unless you're inclined. Um, you can just hit the ground running with this one, and and you know strangely enough we have a we have a handy guidebook. That goes along with it. That uh, will tell you everything you need to know. Very nice. That's cool. Uh, that is very nice. So we got to talk a little, Bruce. Um, were you? Did you get to hear him do his DJ um, a week or so ago, where he was uh, broadcasting from the house and and selecting different records? Oh yeah, absolutely. That was you know that was appointment listening. Um, Me and I too. That, uh, and I made sure that you know I was at the desk and and had that going. And I, I found it, um, you know, honestly, I found it comforting. Uh, I found it 
Um, it was a way to have connection with not only with, you know, with obviously an artist that we are all um, dedicated to, but also I felt connected to the other people who were obviously listening at that point um, because it was because it was a live thing, because we were all doing it at the same time. Um, I felt like, you know, I felt like I, I knew I wasn't the only one doing that. Um, there were we, you know, all of us uh, Bruce fans were you know, we're plugged in and doing, listening to the same thing at the same time. And I think that that communal aspect that we can't do in person right now, I think is really important. So I, I thought it was a great thing. And I, I was, I was also pretty blown away by the, uh, by the musical selection. It was, it was a really, uh, diverse, uh, selection of stuff that I thought really gave, you know, obviously there was a lot of thought put into what he was, what he was selecting and the kind of message he wanted to send with it. Um, it was just, you know, I, I thought it was just a delight. I hope, I hope it happens more. Yeah, I, I, I think diverse is a great phrase because that's what I thought. I found it very comforting. I thought it was diverse. I, I loved um, the the artist he picked and the song he picked. Um, I am sad to say that I, I was aware of John Prine, not a big fan, but uh, based on the amount of people on my Twitter feed that I admire. Um, I've gone back and listened to some of his music because of the sense of loss they've shared. I thought that was a really beautiful sentiment Bruce gave about him. Yeah, he's certainly, you know, he's one of, to me, John Prine is one of those guys um, who you're a fan of, even if you don't know who he is, because you are so, um, you are so plugged into, people that were hugely influenced by him. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, and that includes Bruce and that includes, um, you know, Jason Isbell and Brian Fallon, um, uh, Casey Musgraves, you know, the, the kind of people that uh, uh, I think a lot of Bruce fans listen to, even if they're not completely plugged into John Prine, um, draw huge inspiration from, from his work. So I think his loss was so, um, uh, you know, just just such a tragedy for uh, so many people that that we're uh, attuned to. I agree. Yeah, um, Ron, this has been great. I've, I've kept you almost an hour. We didn't get to women in refrigerators, DC or Marvel uh, team ups. Uh, there's so much more we could talk about, um, but I do have to share with you. I'm a little jealous. Because I'm thinking you being in the New York area may get to see next Wednesday's show um, on TV, uh, the Jersey for Jersey, while I'm going to have to just listen to it on the radio here in Texas. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure what the what the broadcast plans are for that. Um, But, uh, you know, this is the kind of stuff that's that's keeping us sane to a certain extent. It is. There's a and and the. The, the 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 nature of you know the artists that we are dedicated to I think is to to give back and to um, to share what they're doing and uh, you know honestly the some of the biggest um, pleasures I have right now are um, an artist named Mike Mignola who created Hellboy and uh, is is you know a, 
a guy that I met for the first time probably 30 years ago. And we always, you know, chat when we see each other. And, uh, you know, I'm just a huge fan of his stuff. He's been posting, you know, a number of daily drawings um, on Twitter that are just like, man, it, it, there's just a sense of relief seeing something that cool on a daily basis. Um, the ISO lounging live stream that uh, Amanda Shires does with Jason Isbell, um, five o'clock central every day. I mean, that's appointment viewing for me now. Um, uh, Brian Fallon doing Instagram shows, um, all of this stuff where people are just trying to connect with each other and, and give a sense that we're all, we're all doing this together. Um, we're all alone together. Uh, it's, um, look, I, I wouldn't wish this situation on anyone, certainly. Right. Uh, but uh, it's uh, as as bungled as, as the response has been in a lot of ways. Uh, I think it's even more inspiring how people are trying to um, help each other and hold on to each other. Yeah, one of the my other obsessions slash passions is Doctor Who. And we were, I'm, we're continuing to do our podcast, and we we made the joke that you know we thought that was this going to be this dry year of when they had the holiday special, and then they're talking like the next season maybe 2021, and you know so you're just going to go a year without new Doctor Who material till COVID 19 happens, and all of a sudden you're getting rewatches. You're getting showrunners doing short stories. You're releasing, and and it. Then when you look at as you talked about with Jason Isbell and other musicians, going on the uh, live, and there there is that sense of community that hey we're all stuck alone, but we're in this together. So let me share a little joy. Let me show a little creativity, so that it eases the pain a little bit. Yeah. Uh, you know, I certainly, uh, when, when this all started, I think everybody, um, sort of pointed out that, uh, Shakespeare wrote some of his greatest works while he was quarantined for a pandemic. Um, so, so yes, uh, I, obviously we don't want this, but I think some, some great art is ultimately going to come out of it. Um, maybe that's the, maybe that's the thing that we have to concentrate on is that, um, when, when life returns to what we perceive as normal, um, I think there's going to be uh, even more, uh, great art for us to enjoy. I think so. Um, Ron, uh, please share how, if someone wants to reach you, um, how can they, and how can they, um, find your stuff? Uh, the easiest way to find me is at Ron Mars on Twitter. Um, that's the one that uh, that's usually uh, open. Uh, there's a Facebook page as well, um, but it's a fan page and uh, somebody else handles that for me. Um, so it's at Ron Mars on Twitter. Uh, RonMars.com is my website, which is in sore need of an update. And I, I guess maybe this is the best time to do that. Isn't yeah. It? <laughs> um, uh, and um, the publishing company is ominouspress.com. And if you're interested in the uh, Dreadstar Returns Kickstarter, you can just go to Kickstarter and Google Dreadstar Returns. Um, it is the only it is the only project named Dreadstar Returns on there. Yeah, and I just tweeted a link to it, uh, and I will include that in the show notes. 
Um, I am a proud backer. I am looking forward to reading and seeing this wonderful art. Ron, um, please continue to be safe. Uh, enjoy the time with your family. Let make sure they're safe. And um, I, I wish you the very best, my friend. I am sure we will talk in the future. We will do it again. Uh, everybody stay safe and sound. All right. Bye, everyone. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, Set Listening Bruce. Set Listening Bruce is part of the Southgate Media Podcast Group. The theme for Set Listening Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. I'm good. I'm How good. are you How doing? Same day as every other day. It is um, It is a little bit of Groundhog Day, isn't it? Um, not that it's all that different for me. So, right. So that's not a complaint, merely an observation. Yeah, um, I was going to ask you about that. Um, you know, because I, I assume you do most of your work at home. Um, but it's still strange that you can't go out for breakfast or go to the starbucks to get coffee or you know it's just it's a really weird time well just that yeah i mean that's exactly it just that little break of going to starbucks um in fact i when we dropped my daughter's car off this morning Mm -hmm. um there is a little um you know trolley car diner right next to the garage yeah and usually when we do this Drop the car off, go have breakfast. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that was not an option this morning. We both were kind of like, oh, well, that's a shame. Yeah, it um, is. Um, and like I said, for me, um, you know, just getting out of the house once a day to go to the gym, work out, that was, you know, that was sort of the daily ritual, and that's not even a possibility now. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, um, if the dogs start barking, we'll just take a pause, and uh, I can edit it out. No problem. <laughs> Okay, I'm I'm quite certain it's not an if, it's a when. Yeah. Because, you know, so, I mean, the garage is literally 10 minutes down the road. Yeah. And my daughter just went to pick up the car. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so at most, it'll be like they haven't seen her in 20 minutes, and it'll be like, oh, my God, she's home. Um, I love that enthusiasm. What led me to think about that is Charlie, great pup. We love him. But he is like most dogs, like when the – the yard guys show up to cut the outside grass, you know, it's, it's like, Oh, grandpa, you just don't understand how evil they are. Just, you know, just barking, just roaming the house, just, just ready to protect us. <clears throat> Squirrel in the yard. Yes. Bird in the yard. Mm-hmm. UPS man in the driveway. It's all the same thing. Oh, it is. It's just, it's just like, Oh, heaven, heaven. Thanks. And, uh, it, it's, so that's been, and we've kind of joked about that as we do conference calls with my job. Um, you know, we, we remind everyone mute when you're not talking, but once you're talking, if we hear your kids in the background, we get it. You hear your dogs in the background. We get it. There's just nothing you can do. (laughs) 
It's the new normal. It is the new normal. It's good. Well, I'm glad everyone's safe there in the house. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.